All right, welcome back to RUF. We have an adventurous night ahead of us tonight, if any of y'all looked at the text we're covering. It is Genesis 17, which is the passage about circumcision. Uh, something we want to do in RUF um, is deal with God's Word and not just deal with the parts of it that we like and are easy to talk about, but all of it. I think it's uh, God didn't just give us the Pauline letters. He didn't just give us the Gospels. Um, he gave us this whole book, and to consider we we're going to be responsible to consider it all. And um, anybody here familiar with the comedian Jim Gaffigan? Have y'all heard his bit on circumcision? He has this. He's uh, he's a great comedian, uh, and he has this bit on circumcision. And he's like, I wanted to be there the first time God and Abraham had this conversation. God was like Abraham, and he's like, Yes, God. He's like, I've got something I've got to ask of you. He's like, okay, God, whatever you want. He's like, well, I want you to cut off the end of your penis. And he's like, uh, God, I don't think we have a good connection. Oh, that wasn't clear on that? <laughs> and then Gavin goes, and I also want to be there for the first conversation Abraham and Sarah had about it. Like, what happened? Like, Sarah walked into the bathroom, and Abraham was coming out of the shower, and Sarah's like, what did you do to yourself? And he's like, relax, honey. God told me to do it. <laughs> She's like, well, if God told you to jump off a bridge, would you? And he's like, no, that's ridiculous. If God told you to sacrifice our son Isaac, would you? Actually, we need to talk about that. <laughs> so anyways, we're recognizing it's an interesting passage. Um, this is Genesis 17, verses 1 through 14. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abram, And as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations, and this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this text, as odd as it is, and um, we trust that you have something to teach us in that. And we walk in here coming through different days and coming from different paths in life um, at different places and what we think about you, dear Lord. But we pray now that... By the power of your Holy Spirit, you would speak through your word and you would speak to whatever it is that brought us in here, um, wherever we are. All of us on some level sense that there's something spiritual and religious about who we are as people and we're accounting for it different ways. And I pray that we would find that in Scripture you describe 
um, who we really are as people, and we begin to apprehend who you are as God. Be with us, dear God. Teach us, Holy Spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, so I had this opening question that now is kind of like ridiculous, but <clears throat> this is my opening question. Have you ever been in a social situation where some, someone uncomfortably broke the common rules of conduct? I was reading that, and as I read it, I realized, oh, I just did that like five minutes ago. I was a preacher, and I said a word about the male anatomy. Um, no, but anyways, to kind of introduce the idea, I, I, I kind of thought about, have you ever been in a situation where someone uncomfortably broke the kind of common rules of conduct? And what I mean by that is just something awkward. When we were greeting people, I was talking to Josh. I wasn't even doing this for the sake of illustration of the sermon. But like, I high-fived uh, Melanie, and then Josh put his hand up, and I intentionally went with the fist bump after he put his hand up in order to create a little bit of confusion right there, just to see what happens, just intentionally creating awkwardness, right? Well, I put the hand up when you were going with the fist. Yeah, yeah, you did hand. <laughs> I was creating the awkwardness. Oh, okay. God, you went one step further than I was thinking. Yeah. But all that to say, here's the point. There were social expectations, and one of us broke the social expectations, and then there's like awkward pause moment, like, we're not doing this action, because that would be weird, so then people adjust, and where are we now? And we got completely baffled and laughed about it, now we're talking about it here, and it just feels really ridiculous. (laughs) Here's my point. We have social expectations about how people should interact, from tiny little mundane things up to really, really big things. And we've probably all been in circumstances where somebody broke a common rule of conduct, and you almost didn't know it was a common rule of conduct until it got broken. And one example for me was I was performing my cousin's wedding in my black robe as a preacher and everything, and we prayed with the um, wedding party right before we went out to go do the wedding. And um, I was like, well, y'all, let's let's take hands and pray. And when I did, the bridesmaid next to me did this action. (laughs) The interlocking fingers, not... The not interlocking fingers. And you never think, you know, with a stranger, you just don't interlock fingers until a stranger interlocks fingers. With you. <laughs> and you're like, whoa, we just went somewhere that's like not within the common set of expectations for this kind of social interaction. I'm like, I'm married. You can feel my ring. Like, this is awkward. And I didn't want to look and make eye contact because I had no idea what was going on. And maybe she... Then I began to doubt myself. I'm like, maybe I went interlocking. <laughs> Somehow, and I wasn't thinking about it, and she's thinking all these thoughts. It was, it was a nightmare. <laughs> but we've all been in those circumstances, and this is why I love the TV show Curb Your Enthusiasm. Who's seen this show? Okay, it's like Seinfeld on steroids. And basically what the show is, is Larry David observing all the time these tiny little common cultural rules that we're all supposed to obey, and he breaks them. Or somebody else breaks them and he gets furious and we're like, relationships fall apart. I was just watching an episode the other day where he's, he got the cable guy to his house because the cable was broken. And you can never get the cable guy to your house. And so he's excited that he's there. And his wife calls him from an airplane and she thinks she's about to crash. And so he's torn because he can get his cable fixed if he gives the cable guy all his attention. And he's never been able to get the cable guy to his house. But his wife's on the phone saying, I'm about to die, Larry. I love you and all this kind of stuff. And he's like... Okay, that's great, but I have the TiVo guy here, and I can never get the TiVo guy here. And there's a rule, right? If your wife thinks she's going to die, you talk to your wife and not the cable guy, right? And Larry breaks the rule. The other thing he does, another... I've been watching a lot of Curb Your Enthusiasm recently, is um, he donates a kidney to his friend Richard Lewis. 
And after he's, before he's made the donation he's already agreed to, he's over at Richard's house. He knows Richard has a new putter that Larry is interested in. And he's like, hey, man, do you mind if I just give it a try, if I take it out and, uh, and put around with it one day? And Richard Lewis is like, no, I'm really uncomfortable with people, you know, using my golf clubs. And so Larry is observing what we would think is a common cultural rule, which is, I'm giving you a kidney so I can borrow your putter for one day, right? Um, anyways, the whole show, Curb Your Enthusiasm, is about that. It's brilliant. Y'all should watch it. But it's about this. It's observing that we all have these expectations about how a relationship should go in tiny little silly mundane areas and also up to obviously huge areas. Um, we all have rules. Relationships are rule-based, all of them, all the time. And what I mean by rules is we have expectations about how people and we should act in every single social situation. All relationships are rule-based. And then because they're rule-based, that actually means that all relationships are fluid or they're in flux, meaning that the, the relationship is constantly being redefined to how well people kind of live into those rules, right? So me and Bridesmaid, never going to be friends or ever going to speak again the rest of our life. That relationship severed, never happening, right? That rule is just too awkward when it was broken, you know? But all of our relationships are actually constantly changing according to how people act in them and whether or not... They fit our expectations of this is how the relationship is supposed to go. Um, and again, from, from tiny little mundane things like there was a Waffle House waiter that just kind of got uncomfortably open and honest with me in Knoxville and it just felt awkward and it was like, no, listen, you've got to understand the waiter patron role. Like, let's back off. I can't come to this Waffle House for a while. Um, <laughs> on to like uh, bigger things like roommates, right? There's a certain way your roommate's supposed to behave. There's a certain way your friends are supposed to behave. There's a certain way your parents, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, whatever it is, they're supposed to behave. Now, here's the question. What happens when people break our rules, right? Now, the smaller the rule, the smaller the consequences. And, and, and kind of, in a sense, the, uh, the, less, the, the shallower, the least important the relationship, the smaller the consequences. But in some sense... When people break our rules, there's basically, especially when we're talking about the serious rules and serious relationships, there's three options. A, we cut them out, right? Probably many of us aren't friends with roommates, maybe previous roommates we've had in life, or maybe siblings, or maybe friends we've had in life, where they broke a significant rule, and so, boom, that's it. The rule you broke is a deal breaker. It's a relationship ender. Another thing that can happen is maybe we don't cut off the relationship Altogether, but we move them out to a further ring of associations. So they were in here. They were part of this close-knit group of friends. But they broke certain rules. Maybe these weren't terribly big rules, but kind of meaningful rules. So I'm not cutting off the relationship, but guess what? You got moved out. You're not quite as in far into my confidences as you used to be. right? You don't have quite the same access to me as you used to. The other thing, we can, so we can cut them out. We can simply move them a little bit further out. Or... We can come up with a list of things that they need to do to get back in, right? Hey, behave according to these rules again, and you'll get back in my good graces, you know? And that's how the relationship comes back. Here's my point for tonight. This is not how God relates to his people. His relation, relating with him is absolutely rule-based, just like all relationships, but his approach is not so casual that it's something that's in constant flux, that you're in and out, or you're good or bad, that you have more or less access, that it's back and forth. The way he relates to his people is not as casual as a friendship. And in some ways, it's actually, hear what I'm saying, it's incomplete to call it a personal relationship with God. 
our relationship with God is personal, but that's not a full-orbed understanding of the way we relate to Him. That's a very that's 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 a defining about a fourth of our relationship with God. It's incomplete to say your relationship with God is a personal relationship. It's much more than that. And in fact, the word that the Bible uses, and you, the word God uses here in Abraham seventeen in Genesis seventeen with regard to Abraham is covenant. The best way to describe our relationship with God is that it is a covenantal relationship. That's the specific designation of the way he relates. And what that means is this. He handles relational failure. He handles when we break the, relation, the relational rules. He handles it totally differently than we do. For the friendship, there's no commitment. Because if you can cut friends out, guess what? That means y'all aren't committed to each other, right? Covenant is totally different. It's not friendship. It's not simply personal acquaintance. It's not we're really close and we care about each other a lot right now. But if you break the rules really bad, you could be done with me. Covenant's utterly different. And the best way to, the shorthand definition of covenant is this. God simply binds himself to his people. Literally in chapter 15, he actually bound himself in blood to his people. So here's the question for tonight with Genesis 17, with this odd passage about this odd ritual. It's really this. How is God different in the way he relates to our failure as his people and our failure in living according to the rules of relationship? And what we have is we have the three ways God responds in here. He corrects Abraham's perspective. He gives him a new identity and he gives him a bloody son. He corrects his perspective. He gives him a new identity and a bloody son. This is how God covenantally deals with people who fail and their relationship with him, who fail to live according to the rules. Remember where Abraham is. We know now he's 99 years old, verse 1. Romans 4.19 actually describes him at this point in his life and says he's basically dead. That's how Paul describes him. He's as good as dead. At this point, he has a 13-year-old son who is his bastard son that he had by his housekeeper. And he had that son because he didn't trust God. And he has a wife, Sarah, in her 90s who doesn't have any children. And what we've known as we've gone through the, all the, the stories of Abraham is this, that all of God's blessings are tied to Abraham having a child and becoming a great nation and blessing the world through Abraham's family. Abraham's family is important. It's seminal, right? But in light of Abraham's failure, this is what God says to him. This is how God deals with Abraham's failure to keep the rules in the relationship. He starts with this. When, the Lord, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and says this, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless. And what God is saying is this. He's saying, you've got to see things the right way, Abraham, or Abram at this point. You don't see the world the right way. And what he's doing is he's giving him a new perspective, a new way to see the world. And let me point out to you how he's doing that. He's saying, you've got to get some fundamental things about reality. The first thing you have to get is, I am El Shaddai. This is a new title for God being introduced to. I am God Almighty. And this is a cosmic claim that He is powerful, that He is Almighty, that God is not and cannot be an accessory. He's not an addendum. He's not something extra added on, because then He wouldn't be God. He's either God Almighty or He's nothing. And He says, Abram, you've got to get who I am, and then you've got to understand that what that means is you walk before me and be blameless. And this is a simple point. We all live our entire life, every aspect of our life, in front of an audience. Before the eyes of somebody, or some group, or some institution. 
that we want to find a modicum of acceptability from. Right? We're living in front of an audience. You're living in front of your professors and your friends and your parents, in front of the opposite gender, right? In front of a coach. And our behavior is largely determined by the audience we're living our life out in front of, right? And at different times and in different contexts, we actually find ourselves more and more conforming to the acceptable standards of one audience over others, right? Freshmen, when freshmen got here, guess what? You're, this is going to terrify you, but for the first week, you all look like freshmen. And you actually all look like high school students and kind of look like high school students a little bit still today. But here's what slowly happened. Y'all are like never come back to our now, right? <laughs> but this is what's happened. You slowly started to look more and more like Stanford students because you live around Stanford students and you want to be accepted by Stanford students. And that's not wrong. I'm not saying that's wrong. But you've changed the way you dress. You've changed the way you've spoken slowly, almost not noticeably. And that's what happens over time. We all do this. We change the way we talk. We change the way we joke. The stories we tell, how we carry ourselves according to the audience we're in front of. You don't act around your friends the way you act around your professors or the way you act around your parents or the way you act around your grandparents. All different audiences that on some degree and in some way you've chosen you want to be accepted by them and so you act the appropriate way according to the social context, according to the audience you want to please, right? People's, people, in, in some sense, our behavior changes as we get more consumed with one audience over another, right? And um, what God's doing here is he's doing this. He's saying, listen, you need to know, I'm your primary audience. If there's one set of eyes that watches over all of your life that is present with you in every situation, it's mine. That's what he's telling Abraham. He's saying, listen, you've got to walk through life and understand there are all these people you live in front of, but I'm the one whom you live in front of all the time. I'm the one who's supreme. I am the audience about which you should care. Right? Walk is the word, the biblical word always used for living life. And uh, sometimes we talk about Christian walk or your spiritual walk and we mean that's your devotional and prayer life. That's not what it refers to. It refers to everything you do. And this is a perspective shift on reality. He's saying you sit here before the Lord and what this means is tonight you order a hamburger at Axe and Palm before the Lord. You'll do your homework before the Lord. You'll actually sleep before Him. You'll get dressed. You'll attend class. You'll wave to your friends. You'll play volleyball. And you'll flirt all before the Lord. He is your constant company. He is your constant audience. And so the call to be blameless is just a logical extension of that. Is it not? It's the logical command that follows, Hey, by the way, did you know your whole life has walked out in front of me? But the word blameless is troublesome. It's troublesome for Abraham and it's troublesome for us. Because literally the preceding verses in chapter 16 are Abraham sleeping with his housekeeper because he doesn't trust God. So is Abraham innocent? Obviously not. And what, if, what the call to walk blameless before the Lord is really this. It's the call to walk, to walk wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord. And that's important to understand because it's important to, to articulate that here's an, to articulate this fact: Christians are actually not hypocrites. We all think that we are. We all have been at times, but Christians aren't hypocrites. Because a hypocrite who says one thing but does another, but Christians are not people who say we have no sin. And Abraham is not somebody who says he has no sin. And the Bible actually affirms that. It says in First John one eighteen: If we say we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Wholehearted devotion to the Lord is not not sinning. 
What it is is repentance when you do sin. It is by the Spirit putting to death these deeds of the flesh. Christians aren't hypocrites when they sin. We are hypocrites when we don't repent, when we don't hate our sin. And so to be wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord is to constantly return to Him in our junk and in our mess and see that His grace and His mercy is continually sufficient for us. This is a great quote from an um, old, old, old pastor and theologian named Thomas Watson. He says, God is glorified when we receive mercy. So that when we seek salvation, we're actually honoring God. What an encouragement this is to the service of God to think that while I'm hearing and praying, I'm glorifying God. Would it not be an encouragement to a subject to hear his prince say to him, Listen, you will honor and please me very much if you will go to my gold mine and dig as much gold for yourself as you can carry away. So for God to say, Go to the ordinances, go to word, go to prayer, go to fellowship, go to preaching, go to the gospel, and get as much grace as you can. Dig out as much salvation as you can, and the more happiness you have, the more God will count himself glorified. That's what it means to walk before the Lord and be blameless. It's not to be perfect. Abram's not perfect. We can, the text would be utterly inconsistent. The word blameless means to be wholehearted. It means to be coming back to the Lord in your heart over and over and over again and digging out as much grace and salvation as you can from Him. Right? Abram's given a new perspective on life. But he's also given a new identity. That's the next thing God does with him. That's the next way God begins to, to deal with Abraham's relational failure, the fact that he didn't live up to the rules. And in order to get this... Um, verse 3, Abram falls on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be a father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. Now in order to get this, we have to understand thing, something about names and a lot of times we read biblical names and we think names are really important then, but they're not important now. But the reality is, don't look at the person on your right, but think of the person on your right right now. Do that. You can't think of them apart from their name. Their identity is so, our identity is so wrapped up in our name, we can't even think of somebody apart from their name. And so you see what's happening here, right? Abram's being given a new identity. And it's tied to all the promises of God. Abram, that name actually meant great father, which is actually kind of a horrible, tragic irony because he was the father of a bastard son that he had in sin and faithfulness, right? He was not a great father. But in verse 5, God gives him a new name, a new identifier, which is Abraham. And that name means father of many nations. God gives him a new identity. For what purpose? For the purpose of advertising what God would do. You see, his name change is wrapped up in all these promises that God makes inside of his covenant. Abraham's name, it's not a testimony, it's not a, testimony, it's not a signifier pointing to how great Abraham was. It's a signifier and an identifier that pointed to who God was and what he was doing. This is a 99-year-old man, no child but his bastard son, 90-year-old wife, and he'll be known as the father of many nations, the father of many kings, the one who would inherit the promised land. His new identity wasn't a testimony to his goodness or to his faithfulness or to his covenant consistency. It was a testimony God's goodness and God's faithfulness and God's covenant consistency. The verses are amazing because they testify to all of this. My covenant is with you. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. 
No longer shall your name be called Abraham, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of multiple nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations. I will establish my covenant between me and you. I will give you and your uh, offspring the land, and I will be your God. Do you hear who the actor is in this situation? you hear who's doing all of the heavy lifting? God. Abraham's name is a testimony to God's faithfulness. Abraham's identity is a testimony to God's faithfulness. How often do we think of ourselves as the primary actor in our own faith story? That it's about, that my faith is about what I need to do and what I'm going to do, what I need to do better, what I have done, what I hope to do, and what one day I intend to grow into. Right, and, and, and God's saying here to Abram, this is what you need to know about our relationship. That's what he's saying to Abram. I'm giving you a new identity. Your new identity is going to be the father of many nations. And the reason why, and so what people will understand why, is because I gave you a child. Fruitfulness, I gave it to you. Kings, I'm going to bring from you. The promised land, I will give it to you. And I will be your God, and I will be their God. And you see, it's all tied up in all the Abrahamic promises that we've heard since Genesis 12, right? God's promise in Genesis 12, this is the covenant maturing. It's not a different deal, it's the same deal being further explained, right? In the Genesis 12 promise that I'm going to bless you, Abram, and through you bless the world. Abram's new identity is the father of great nations for the purpose of great blessing. If you're in Christ... That's your identity. That's why Christians have referred to themselves as the spiritual descendants and why Paul refers to us as the spiritual descendants of Abraham. You are the great nation. You are the fruitfulness of God's blessing for the purpose of them perpetuating that blessing into the world around you. And in some ways, in, in some ways the whole sermon, maybe all of our yef, is summed up in this next three minutes. The world's messed up. The primary reason it's messed up is because we're bad people and we're deeply selfish. That's just the reality. We're trying to create and define other reasons why it's messed up, but it's just our fault. I'm not going to go into all the different ways it's it's our fault, but it is. The best solution that we've come up with so far to try to fix everything that's wrong with life is education, right? And this is not a shot at Stanford. This is a shot at all of us. We just think, if we can just educate everybody enough, that's going to take care of this problem that we have, the human experience, right? Education's not bad. We're not saying it's bad, but we're kind of giving it a weight that it, doesn't, it can't bear. Because here's the reality. People who buy a $350,000 house on a $345,000 loan that they can't afford know that they took out a $345,000 loan they can't afford, and they still did it. You see, if you had told them, you can't afford this, they already knew that. Education wouldn't have helped. It wouldn't have fixed our economic crisis. People who hit their children hate that they hit their children. They know it's bad. You don't have to educate them and say, hey, don't you know how negative child abuse is and what it brings on children? No, no, no. They know that. Crack addicts know that crack affects them relationally, emotionally, psychologically. They know that. If you told them that, they would say, yes, I agree with you. I'm going to do this, though. Education doesn't fix the problem. We, we think, oh, if we just educate everybody, it's going to fix the problem. Because this is what we fundamentally think, and the Bible disagrees with this. If we tell people that bad things will happen if they don't live the right way, then they'll stop doing bad things. 
That's the fundamental idea behind education is going to fix the world. If we tell everybody that bad things will happen if you don't do the right things, then everybody will stop doing bad things. It hasn't worked yet, and it's not going to work tomorrow. It's not going to work next year, and it's not going to work ten years from now. And the right president's not going to fix it either. The gospel is this. This is what God's communicating to Abraham. This is how I'm going to fix the world. I'm just going to promise myself to these people. What if I just choose to shower them with my love and affection? And what if it has no bearing on how well they perform, but simply because I covenanted or I promised to? That's God's solution. I'm just going to knit myself and give myself over to and give blessing to people regardless of how they behave. And when they ask me why, I'm going to tell them, here's why, because I promised I would. The Christian solution, the Bible solution to the problem of the world, it's not education, it's not policy. The Christian solution to the world is covenant love. And it's different than the word love we use today where you can fall in and out. Covenant love is binding, it's lasting, it lasts even when it hurts, even when it's costly. That's the kind of love it is. And only a love that has that kind of capacity, only that kind of love has the capacity to break into our hardened and our fearful and selfish hearts and start to change us. It's to be loved in spite of who we are over and over and over and over again. And we encounter the new, when we encounter the deeper and darker parts of our hearts that we've been trying to hide and weren't there, he says, no, 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 see, you need to understand now, my covenant love still holds true. You think you discovered something new and darker about yourself. I already knew it. And what you need to know now is my covenant love, when you thought you were a good person, still holds true when you found that you weren't. That's God's solution to the problem of the world. If you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, that means that this is the blessing that you've received and which you've been grafted into and which now you are to perpetuate to the world. Love. Unselfish, not conditioned on their acceptability, love. Christians are people who, having experienced this kind of love, go into places and lives of need and brokenness and manifest that same love. We're not simply recipients of love, we're actually recipients and also vessels. God doesn't simply save us from things, He also saves us into a mission. If you are living a Christian, you're trying to, that is simply a running internal dialogue between you and God and introspection that you're trying to make yourself into the right type of person, and all you're doing is thinking inside yourself all the time. Christianity will always be confusing to you because it's never intended to be lived out that way. Not saying introspection doesn't happen. But if it's not manifesting itself out into love and into joy, into patience and kindness and long-suffering out into the world, you'll always feel confused about what it means to be a Christian. If you're not a Christian, if you're here and you're processing things and you're listening, I would simply suggest this. You, like all of us, often have a solution to your own experience of the frustration of life. You've got a solution. It can look like a combination of a thousand things. It can look like work. It can look like humor. It could look like fixing your body, social acceptance, achievement, pleasure, withdrawal, wealth, education, whatever it is. I don't know what it is, and it's probably very sophisticated, because we all have a very sophisticated self-salvation plan. But here's what I do know. It's not going to work. God, this is how he's worked. He has bound himself to essentially a pervert, Abraham, and to sinners that would come after him, and to sinners like me and to sinners like the other Christians in this room, because God knows only one thing can really change people. 
and it's not wealth redistribution, it's not education. It's a powerful experience of covenantal love that says this, I know all your faults and your betrayals and your inadequacies and your shortcomings, and I still love you. I come to you and I correct your perspective, and I come to you and I give you a new identity. And this is what he does lastly. He gives Abraham a new sign. Abram's finally given in verse 9 his conditions, right? God said, I will, and I will, and I will, and I will, in verse 9. And God said to Abraham, but as for you, right? And this is the moment where it's supposed to sour, right? So God's going to do all these great things, but here are all his requirements. Here's what we have to do. Every relationship has rules and stipulations and expectations. God is no different. Here's verse 9. So Abraham, here's your end of the bargain. You shall keep my covenant, and you and your offspring throughout their generations... This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring. Every male among you shall be circumcised. That's Abraham's end of the bargain. Now what's God saying? What are the stipulations he's giving Abraham? It's this, and it's beautiful that this is what God says. Here's what I require of you in this bargain. He says this, carve a reminder of my faithfulness into your flesh. That's what God requires of Abraham. This is what's required. Carve a sign of God's goodness and God's faithfulness and God's covenant love into your flesh. That's what he requires of Abraham. He doesn't say, here's the list of all the moral things you should do. Now, God absolutely thinks we should live a certain way and he tends to transform us into that by his love. But with Abraham right here, instituting his covenant, he says, I'm going to do all these great things for you and here's what I want you to do. Carve a sign of my faithfulness into your skin. Now, what's a sign? Sign, in a very simple sense, and this is how it operates here, is just something, something that draws your attention away from other stuff and then points you somewhere or to something. Signs don't ever point to themselves. They point past themselves to something. Right? So he says, wear this covenant sign. And it signifies, among other things, three things. First of all, it signifies membership. It's a sign in the Old Testament that you're numbered among God's people. It's all throughout this text. Every male, eight days old, even the children of servants in the household. And this is not an uncommon practice today. This is not foreign to us. When you got into Stanford, what did you start wearing? Stanford shirts, right? Because that's the sign that marks your membership here. I don't even get in here, but I still wear Stanford shirts. So I'm like falsely wearing the sign, right? When you get on a team, what do you do? You wear a uniform. When you get in a fraternity or sorority, you wear a pen. We still give signs today upon our entrance into membership of a community, right? So God gives us gives as a sign of membership. More so than that, and what's kind of most central in this text right here, is it's a sign of God's promises. Circumcision is not uncommon at this time. It was practiced in the ancient Near East at this time, but it was actually practiced when, uh, when boys became men went into puberty. And the reason why that's when people were circumcised is because that's when they could procreate and circumcision was tied to this notion because that it that allowed men to be more virile, to be more fertile, whatever it is. And so that's when you were circumcised. It was, circumcision was attached to and associated with a man, when, the time when a man could begin to create life. So do you see what the sign is pointing to right here? It's to remind Abraham God creates life. The sign that goes right to the organ by which God would bring life from a 99-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman. It's a reminder of the most intimate point and the life-giving point that God is going to bring life where there was no life. That God brings new life when we least expect it, when it seems impossible, and when all our worldly strategies fail. 
It's a sign of membership. It's a sign of God's covenant promises. And actually, it's a sign that also points forward to Jesus. We look at it to be in the covenant, to be covered by the covenant. You had to be cut off from the flesh. Verse 14 is one of those scary verses in the Bible we don't like. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Anyone who doesn't cut off flesh will be cut off from God. Right? Either flesh has to be cut off or you get cut off. Now what's God saying right here? Well, Paul actually explains it to us more in the New Testament. Colossians chapter 2, verse 11. In Christ, you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together, together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set it aside. He nailed it to the cross. The sign said flesh had to be cut off so that you wouldn't be cut off. And what Paul is saying is, don't you see? It was Jesus that this was pointing towards. Jesus is the real spiritual circumcision. He was the flesh that was cut off from the land of the living for you. The Old Testament act of cutting off our flesh by hands, it doesn't save you. It's a sign that points you to the one who would become our filthy flesh and then be cut off from the land of the living for us. He is our circumcision. Our consecration, our belonging to the God is never merely a legalistic demand to be a moralist. It's a gracious command to be a servant and a blessing to the world. And it's driven by the grace shown to us. When the text says, as for you, in verse 9, right? This is when we think, here we go, all the mean stipulations God has. Abraham's covenant obligation was, where a sign of the grace given to you? Carve a reminder of grace into your flesh. Wear a sign of God's grace in your most intimate and maybe inappropriate or dirty place, right? And that's God saying, I lavish grace over all of you. I've purchased all of you. I've forgiven all of you. I've justified everything that you are, Abraham. Abraham was given covenant commands, and his covenant command was receive grace and be marked by grace. Be marked by how expensive it was for God to give you grace because it's grace that costs blood and he wants Abraham to bear that sign daily that it takes blood to be in my covenant it takes blood to be restored to God it takes blood for you to be redeemed blood that's given graciously and it's blood that's shed at the cross and that's why God's people no longer look forward we don't need a sign pointing us forward to the shedding of blood because in Colossians we see a new sign for our union with Christ because we see that What that bloodshed was pointing to has occurred at the cross. And so now there's this new sign, and it's baptism. When Jesus died and he rose again in Matthew 28, he instituted a new sign of membership among God's people, a new sign of his covenantal love, a sign of the washing away of sins, and that sign's baptism. That's the sign that God places upon his people to say, you're mine, and my promise is for you, and I make you clean. Two real short points of application to close. The first one is this. Receive God's covenant sign. It's an interesting application, isn't it? 
if you're coming into this Christianity thing, maybe you've bought in, but you haven't been baptized, baptism is the sweetest thing you'll do. In Acts 2, Peter's preaching, and when the preaching cuts to the heart of God's people, and they're like, okay, I'm into this. What do I do? They ask Peter, and he says, this is what you do. Turn to the Lord and be baptized. Turn to the Lord and then let Him put His sign on you. To not receive baptism is like getting into Stanford and refusing to wear a Stanford shirt. It's like joining a team and saying, but I'm not going to wear the jersey. But maybe the most appropriate analogy is it's like getting adopted into a family by loving parents and saying, but I don't want y'all's name. Why wouldn't you? Baptism is a sign, and signs are good, and they're powerful, because when we falter, when we forget who we are, and we forget where we are, signs point us. If you're coming into this Christianity thing, receive the Father's sign. If you haven't been baptized, come and talk to me afterwards. I'd love to talk to you about it. And that leads into the second and last point, which is this. For those of you who have been baptized, remember. Those in Christ, remember the sign that God has placed upon you. When you see a baptism take place, take, take remembrance of your own baptism. Because the reality is, we're all like Doug in the movie Up. You all remember Doug? The entire movie, every time some meaningful conversation is happening and all this kind of stuff, he goes, squirrel! And he loses all sense of what's going on, right? That's how we live life. There are these passionate moments where we're really in touch with what's meaningful and important in life, and we have Doug moments all day long, all week long, all life long, Right? So we need to remember. We need to be called back into those moments of really deeply understanding who God is and, and who we are. So when you find there's no fire in your heart for being the Lord's blessing to the world, when you're confused, when you're lost and distracted, and you're wandering, remember your baptism. Because this is what was said in your baptism. It was not a sign of your faithfulness and your commitment. It was instituted by Christ and it was Him setting His name on you, you are baptized into the name of the triune God, according to Matthew 28. And when, in that baptism, your Father said visibly and dramatically before the people of God, and by an elder ordained by God, your Father said, you are mine. God's relationship rule is not perform or else, which is what our relationship rule is. His relationship rule is, I bind myself to you. I bind myself to love you covenantly. You can never get out. You can never outrun it. And I want you to wear a sign that reminds you of it. And this is the grace that drives us to be a blessing to the world. Let's pray.